Hier kom er uit in vreemd. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. We record the show on Indigenous land that was stolen, that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. My name is Ros Ward and I'm uh, very pleased to host the podcast and I apologise there's been a slight hiatus between episodes in the land of lockdown, two different jobs, a one-year-old and a PhD. Um, we're doing our best. But, <laughs> yeah, this is episode 75. If you haven't listened to... Any of our previous discussions, I'd highly recommend checking out our back catalogue, sharing episodes around and getting involved with some of these discussions um, in various forums that are available around, hopefully, near where you are. And uh, the one that's most pertinent is one happening very soon, which is the Socialism Conference that's now available online to anyone, anywhere. So if you check out uh, socialism conference in the link to the show you'll be able to join in um, a whole heap of amazing discussions coming up uh, very soon our guest today uh, to talk about a campaign that's really been um, an impressive campaign as far as, as much as I've uh, been involved in it um, and an important one as well I think are the Graduate Student Association Education Officers Monica Sestito and Brendan Laws, who are joining us, who are both graduate students at Melbourne University and who, who have been spearheading a campaign uh, to try to prevent the setting up of the Menzies Institute at Melbourne University. So welcome, Monica and Brendan. Thanks very much for being here. Thanks, Rose. Yeah, and thanks for having us. Let's start just with the basics then. Monica, what is this Menzies Institute and... Um, I was just reading it's due to open on the 18th of November in a couple of months. What What is it? Why did you decide to campaign against it? Yeah, so put simply, the Menzies Institute is an outpost for the Liberal Party. It's a project of um, a right-wing think tank known as the Menzies Research Centre, and that centre is bankrolled by the Liberal Party. And what they basically do is uh, create so-called research, maintain an online presence and organise events that dovetail with the Liberal Party's agenda. So, you know, anti-unionism, social conservatism um, and explicitly pro-business. That's what they're about. And in 2017, they approached a few universities um, such as Monash and Latrobe before finally brokering a deal with Melbourne University, who was then led by the Vice-Chancellor, Glyn Davis, and they established a partnership basically with the Menzies Research Centre to create this statue, as it's been called by its supporters, to Robert Menzies. So, you know, the architect of the Liberal Party and um, an all-round uh, horrific figure. So after that partnership was um, brokered, there hasn't been really any notice of the Menzies Institute. It's been very much kept under wraps from the student and staff body. And we only really found out about it early this year when the age, um, so, you know, the, the mainstream media broke news about it. And in particular, they highlighted the slew of Liberal Party figures who are going to be running the Institute, um, such as Georgina Downer, Peter Credlin, and several others. And so after finding out about it, um, students really wanted, myself included, and Brendan to initiate a campaign for a few reasons. And I think 
the first the first of them have to do with the state of universities. So basically in launching this campaign to stop the Menzies Institute, we're trying to fight for publicly funded universities that are under the democratic control of students and staff. Um, obviously, universities have been privatized for decades and that's not something new, but the Menzies Institute really is a flashpoint at the moment in a context where in the last you know, 18 months alone, the government has excluded um, thousands of university workers from JobKeeper. They've um, hiked up fees, particularly for those who want to study the humanities, and they've really um, driven down funding for unis in the latest budget. So in that context, for students and staff to know that the government has put $7 million towards this right-wing think tank, the Menzies Institute, uh, it's pretty much like rubbing salt into a wound. And then I guess the second aspect is about the, demo- like the democratic um, nature of what we think universities should be. So I mentioned before that management has totally just kept this deal under wraps from us. And I think that shows a lot about, um, yeah, how, how in many ways the management exerts authoritarian control over what unis are at the moment. And then I guess... Finally, um, another key reason as to why we wanted to start this campaign is simply about fighting the oppressive um, and exploitative exploitative agenda of the Liberal Party. There's simply no other way to put it, I think. Mm. And it's telling that they think it's a monument um, to Robert Menzies. (laughs) It doesn't really matter what it does. It's just there to promote, you know, his legacy and his great, you know, um, in their eyes. Yeah, totally. The great work he did for the great nation of Australia. It's an extremely nationalist project as well, I would say. Yeah. Um, I was looking at um, the Menzies Research Centre podcast. I recommend people don't do that, but um, (laughs) if you do, you'll find it's basically a list of um, the people featured are a list of the people who uh, campaigned hardest against me in safe schools in that period in 2016. It's quite funny. It's like if you literally looked at the quotes of the people who wanted to attack me for being a communist and queer and gender radical or whatever, um, Lyle Shelton, Tony Abbott, Greg Sheridan, Amanda Stoker, like they're all on this Menzies Research Centre podcast. So I feel like it's kind of a, yeah, it's um, there's a, an appeal to me just on that basic mm. sense of trying to shut this kind of shit down. But, Brendan, let's talk about Robert Menzies, the man himself, the Australian Prime Minister that they're trying to celebrate here. What what are your kind of lowlights of his career? Why is he somebody that you don't think deserves to be uh, memorialised in this way? Yeah, well, as Monica mentioned, he's the founder and the architect of the Liberal Party and the longest-serving Prime Minister as um, Australia sort of launched its way into more of a an imperialist player, um, especially in this region. So we could really have a whole podcast just dedicated to all of the atrocious things that uh, Menzies stood for and that Menzies was responsible for when he was in power. Um, but I mean, some of the things that just really stand out are his overt sympathies for fascism, um, like his favorite uncle raised him to and like groomed him to admire Mussolini. Um, and actually one of his closest uh, political allies, uh, his name was Kent. He, he put him into his cabinet later on. He wrote a four part series in the Melbourne age 
um, saying why I became a fascist and was just openly advocating for it. When Menzies visited Germany after Kristallnacht in 1938, um, he wrote a letter to his sister saying, um, the Germans may be pulling down the churches, but they have erected the state with Hitler at its head into a sort of religion which produces a spiritual exaltation that one cannot but admire. So <laughs> not even subtle with his admiration of these horrific right-wing destructive regimes. And he was also an unabashed war profiteer um, who he earned the name Pig Iron Bob from breaking a strike and threatening to sack all the, uh, all the unionists in Wollongong who were trying to block a shipment of, of steel to be used for the Japanese invasion of China. Then BHP, who was selling this steel, got prominent positions on his war cabinet as World War II started, not to mention him putting forth um, Australian involvement in the Korean and Vietnam invasions. And yeah, during this whole time, he was a very open racist. There's a recording out there of him defending the white Australia policy. Um, and also um, after the Sharpeville massacre, which was a, a flashpoint in the anti-apartheid struggle in, in South Africa, he refused to criticize the, the racist um, police massacre. Um, the prime minister and an architect of apartheid, Hendrik uh, Vorward, said that Menzies was perhaps the best friend South Africa has. Um, on top of that, he was against the ref referendum for indigenous Australians to get citizenship. It was his, his um, the, the liberal prime minister who came after him who actually um, started that referendum. And whenever the British government was looking for a place to test its nuclear bombs, he, without even getting uh, cabinet approval, opened up indigenous land in Maralinga and the uh, Anangu people have still been dealing with the consequences of that decades later. Um, yeah, there, there really is so much whenever you have such a, a racist, sexist, and even overtly monarchist figure like that. Mm. So, yeah, definitely not the person we want a monument for. No, but there's plenty of people like him who do have monuments and um, plenty of people who have been organising to tear them down. It's some from... Uh, where you come from originally, I think, Brendan. Our across the world. So obviously Menzies is dead and all of these people are kind of um, working hard to kind of protect and his memory and so on. So who are some of the characters involved in setting up an institute like this, Monica? Can you highlight some of the people who you said a few before, Peter Credlin, I don't think you gave her a full title. She now has an order of Australia. <laughs> um, but, yeah, a whole heap of scumbags basically um, and some of their political agendas. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. I think um, there's also another episode to be had on un unpacking the litany of horrors that the people behind this institute have been responsible for. So, I mean... There are the people who are on the board, so Peter Kredlin, Georgina Downer, Jeffrey Hone, who's the chairman of the IPA, the Institute of Public Affairs, which is another right-wing think tank, um, and then David Kemp, who's a for former minister in the Howard Liberal government. And you really could unpack each of their careers, but I think, you know, people like Georgina Downer and Peter Kredlin really say it all. So Downer is um, from one of Australia's longest-running conservative family dynasties, uh, she's a pretty unashamed uh, supporter of Trump, 
and Margaret Thatcher. She regards them as her idols. And um, she's known on record for, I guess, saying that the Australia's, Australia's welfare system is too generous and that not only um, should penalty rates be abolished, but actually minimum wage itself. Uh, she was forced to backtrack on that, you know, last statement, which is manifestly ruling class uh, because it, it jeopardised her electoral prospects. But the thing is, she lost anyway as a Liberal candidate uh, twice for the federal seat of Mayo. Um, as for Peter Credlin, I mean, uh, she's widely regarded as, um, I guess, expressing the most bigoted far-right views within the Australian political scene. And that's pretty evident at the moment in her um, daily show on Sky News. She's pretty much a superstar of that right-wing propaganda machine. Um, and some of her highlights, I guess, include last year blaming a COVID outbreak on um, Muslim people celebrating Eid. Um, doesn't matter that Credlin herself opposes um, those public health messages. She had no problem, um, uh, yeah, just vilifying those communities. And just last week as well, she had another um, invective against um, Australia's too generous, overly generous, generous immigration policy. So uh, they're just the people running the Institute. And again, like there's so many other people behind the scenes. So Alan Jones, you know, the notorious shock jock, he's helped to fund the Menzies Institute. And then there are other figures like Nick Cater, who's um, the CEO of the Menzies Research Centre that has spearheaded this project. Um, I receive weekly newsletters from him as a subscriber to the Menzies Research Council. And one particular highlight from this week um, is truly um beggars belief how callous that um, people like himself can be. He was talking about um, the need to live with COVID and he accepted that that meant um, lots of working class and oppressed people dying with COVID. But he said that the question we need to pose ourselves is how many of those people who died with COVID would have died anyway? <laughs> yeah, the classic truism, we will all die at some point, so why not let working class people just die a bit sooner? That's a, uh, yeah. I mean, that list is much longer as well. Another story I've heard recently about um, Downer is that she uh, was putting some pressure on people to um, help provide some research material as some staff members at Melbourne University um, to uh, try to. Uh, prove that there was more kind of Menzies connections with the institution than there actually are because it's one of the arguments they've used for it being there, right? So she was trying to get this staff member to just do this work for her and they were like, well, no, that's not really my job. And she <laughs> said to them, no, but it's your duty to the Commonwealth. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And they were like, what are you talking about? Like, this is a, this is really epitomises her worldview, right? Like this is what you have to do. We are all here to serve the Queen and the Commonwealth. This is the world that these people live in. They're fucking unbelievable. Um, so, yeah, that's all of that side. What about our side, Brendan? You've been, um, I know, one of the people who've been getting people to sign an open letter and and then there was a forum with a few great speakers uh, not long ago. Why are people getting involved with this campaign beyond just students at Melbourne Uni? Well, I, I think people are getting involved because it represents such a, a clear encroachment into the the public sphere from like private forces, but also quite 
nefarious right-wing racist forces and like bigoted forces in many ways. So I think it sort of has this appeal. And whenever people are, people first hear about it, they're a bit shocked because it's quite liber- literally the same liberal government who has been slashing funding to education and promoting all of this sort of culture war mentality that bankrolled the Institute. And while the university is slashing um, funding, um, they're putting up this new monument right in the middle of the old quad at the center of life. So yeah, the students on campus have been in, interested in it because of how it directly ties into what we're facing. But more broadly, um, you know, people who've been to the University of Melbourne, people who care about public space, don't want this type of reactionary institution gaining a greater foothold and using the credibility of the university to normalize what normalize the, the really destructive agenda that it's putting out there. Um, yeah. At our, our last speaker, we had um, G- or our, at our last event, one of the speakers was Janine Lian, who's an um, Wiradjuri academic and activist. And she just spoke about how legacies, how Menzies legacy against indigenous people was so atrocious. And although the university does a lot of sort of lip service to wanting to promote diversity, wanting to promote indigenous um, cultural sensitivity through acknowledgements of country and things like that, they're still putting forward absolutely um, reactionary institutions like this. And whether it's people who care about climate issues, whether it's people who care about democracy, whether it's people who care about anti-racist issues, this institution is an attack on all of those things. Mm. I think that's a really good point about the irony of an institution like Melbourne Uni that's desperately trying to improve its credentials as a you know, modern multicultural anti-racist, uh, acknowledging the... Um, colonization of Australia and starting to rename some of the buildings and stuff like that that are named after famous um, genocidal figures in Australia's history. And then they're like, oh, no, but Robert Menzies, it wasn't, surely that one is fine. It's like, ah, yeah. So drawing some of that out has been useful. Um, uh, One of the things that's come up, Monica, that I wanted to just dwell on for a bit um, just in the course of the campaign, because I think it's interesting because um, it has come up in a bunch of different campaigns, including when we've talked about, or we haven't on this podcast, but you know, politically the discussion of uh, the Ramsey Centre, which is a similar kind of vibe to um, promote Western civilization, a research centre that was touting around universities and um, had the same kind of um, uh, disgusting um, stench about it that a campaign like this like the one you're running um for some people has been seen as an attack on free speech now i think most people listening would already think that's ludicrous but this has been a very serious part of the debate and it's been one of the main arguments that some of the defenders of the institute have made that um if you are trying to shut down this institute where people are expressing political views that you don't like, you're basically, you know, as bad as uh, any kind of censorship movement and so on. This is like cancel culture or something. Mm. 
Yeah, I think this is a really, really important issue. The question is, how can a protest campaign involving hundreds of university staff and students be seen as an attack on free speech? And I think there are two aspects to it. On the one hand, I think there are people who are explicitly um, right-wing and they cynically instrumentalise this attack uh, for their own purposes. Um, and it's just blatantly um, hypocritical because these are the kind of people that only really care about the freedom of the rich and powerful. So they don't bat an eyelid when um, the government uh, threatens to remove, for example, mobile phones from asylum seekers so that they can um, communicate with the public about the horrors of indefinite detention that they're made to suffer. Or they don't bat an eyelid um, closer to home when academics uh, harassed or fired for expressing pro-Palestinian views or for critiquing Australia's imperialist imperialism. Those people that um, cynically, I think, use this argument uh, really show how bankrupt they are through their silence on other issues. So it's easy to dismiss um, that kind of cynicism on the question of free speech. But I think, on the other hand, you do have more um, sincere or earnest concern for free speech that um, we've encountered in the campaign. And I think that's really important to respond to because it reflects something really significant about the way the right is trying to shift and has shifted public discourse to see free speech as exclusively um, just an abstract principle that everyone automatically has and totally disconnect it from questions of material power and wealth. Um, and it's it's those um, material questions that I think are key to understand in this institute because, um, you know, what we're dealing with is basically a Liberal Party-funded think tank, the Menzies Research Centre, purchasing a space on university campuses to um, exert influence on, on campuses and beyond. And that happened without any involvement of staff and students. We had, you know, no free speech, so to speak, in, you know, challenging that manoeuvre. It happened behind closed doors and it happened because you have these institutions of entrenched power and profit that are able to, to um, buy up space in what should be a public institution. So I think by campaigning to shut down the Menzies Institute, we're campaigning against entrenched structures of power, um, and that's really key. And I think when you consider the fact that people like Peter Credlin, um, you know, have a daily platform on Sky News, they're not really people that are lacking in free speech, <laughs> particularly when you, when you consider that question seriously from in a materialist sense. These are people by any, by any imagination, any stretch of the imagination, who have no trouble exercising their free speech. Mm. They have a disproportionate amount of airtime. If you were to um, organise, you know, speech democratically, the amount of people who want to hear racist um, climate change denialist arguments compared to the amount of airtime that those arguments get on Sky News and other channels, yeah, it's um, obviously not democratic. And I think... The campaign has done well to um, address those issues, and I think that was that was a good explanation as well. The other thing that comes up always around student campaigns and things like that, things like this, is uh, for people like you. Monica and Brendan, you know, um, your students, you should sort of be appreciating um, 
the experience of being a student, particularly at such an elite institution like Melbourne University, um, and not worrying yourselves or spending your time in political campaigning. Why do you think students should be campaigning and doing stuff like this, Brendan, not studying as much maybe? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's one of those things where that illusion of just sort of a cakewalk and the best years of your life at university um, has always been there, but it's the cracks in it are really showing during the time of, of the COVID crisis, obviously, where the pressure for students to finish their degrees on time, especially postgraduate students, are under a tremendous amount of stress. Um, it's That experience is, is ringing a bit hollow. And it's one of those things like the the forces behind the the university and you know the forces behind the institution really just view universities as degree factories in a way to get you know filter out the future leaders who will go into politics or go into elite levels of business and then everybody else should really just think about what they need to do to get a job and be part of the whole capitalist system propping up the the profit making motives and in the sort of unique space that students occupy where you're free and outside of the constructs of, of growing up, but you're not yet ground down completely by work like you may be um, in the near future, you it's just important to start questioning the world and questioning far more than how you can be the best worker, intellectual or academic or any of those things, but question how things could, could be different. Um, and I think what's so important about universities in this regard is it provides a training ground for students to really get a sense of your own power. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm from the U.S. I'm from Texas. And I, I went to university initially um, in Houston, which is not a very political city. And my university was not a very political university. Um, but just through starting activism there, confronting power, calling out the, the horrific decisions that were made by the administration and protesting it and challenging them, um, you know, even in that context, a lot of us were able to get a sense of our own power. And if you scale out to more important mo moments in, in history, like the civil rights movement in the U.S., the uprisings in France in 1968 and Italy in the 60s and 70s as well, you see how crucial a role students play, not only in and understanding the world and, and being critical of it, but actually fighting to galvanize larger groups of people to actually change the world. And so, yeah, that's why whenever there's a flashpoint like this and a flashpoint like the COVID crisis and the environmental crisis that's coming up, it's so important that students find their voice and find their, their role in, in starting to change the world. And yeah, that's why, yeah, this is so much more important than just going to class and trying to get a, a piece of paper that, that lets you do a job or, or, you know, further your career in some way. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a very inspiring answer. Thanks, Brendan. And Monica, I mean, you're a socialist. Uh, were you a socialist before you started at Melbourne University? Yes, but I wasn't involved in organised politics, so I guess okay. this has been a really uh, exciting taste of that. Yeah, I was wondering in terms of your critiques of the institution, how that has been um, confirmed or enhanced through doing this campaign. What do you think about 
the role of the university in this and what it what lessons have come out of that? I think this campaign for me has been really uh, key in dispelling any residual illusion that universities uh, are something other than elite capitalist institutions that serve to bolster and enforce the status quo um, much more than they try and shift it. Um, And I guess also it's been really key to see, to dispel any sense in which we're all in this together, you know, as students, um, staff and management at Melbourne Uni. For me, it's been really, really... Yeah, we're one happy family uh, whilst the uni management is axing um, and has axed, sorry, not is axing, but it will ax more, but has axed already 1,300 staff and something like that in the last year whilst it made um, over $100 million in profit. So that dispels the illusion, but particularly in the case of the Menzies Institute, when you consider the fact that the former vice-chancellor, Glyn Davis, so the person who agreed to this institute, um, has gone on to become the CEO of the Ramsey Center for or Institute for Western Civilization, a similarly uh, reactionary project to the Menzies Institute. Um, and you also consider the fact that the current Vice Chancellor, Duncan Maskell, has been ex- expressing the very same anti-lockdown, rabidly pro-business um, argument of the people at the Menzies Research Center. It really um, clarifies the fact that management have much more in common with the right-wing um, cretins that are setting up this institute than they do with us as students. Yeah. And Liam, I was going to bring you in. We both mm-hmm. work at universities just mm-hmm. to say, when you heard about this um, Menzies Institute and the campaign around it, were you surprised at all or is this a confirmation yet again of um, your perspective on universities? Obviously, it's obviously a confirmation. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we've been around, you know, long enough in, univer- in the university sector, both you and I, Ros, to see, you know, how it is, you know, such a, a sort of site of um, of these kind of political battles and not just in terms of, you know, like obviously socialists on campus and other left-wing activists trying to sort of make their campus into a political space and, and campaign around things, but from the perspective of the ruling class, you know, they see these things as they do put an importance on universities that goes beyond just the kind of caricature that we often talk about around, oh, it's, it's the degree factory, like it, it's more than that for them, you know, it's this it's a it's an it's a vital ingredient in their kind of culture war and they want to train up their own ideological rulers you know like the next the next leaders of the ruling class uh in the history of their heroes and what they think the kind of project of australian capitalism and australian imperialism is uh and so they've always been um you know obsessed with with sort of foregrounding people like robert menzies uh and trying to wage this kind of yeah culture war against the likes of Ros Ward, you know, so it's, yeah, not surprising at all. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things that this campaign has already done is drawn out a whole bunch of the young liberals at Melbourne University and um, showed just how uh, just disgustingly racist and sexist and homophobic and transphobic they are. And I was just looking at some of the comments and stuff on it. You've probably deleted more than you've let stay because they're so offensive. But like, even if the campaign just does that for people, highlights the fact that your your fellow students may be closet Nazis and you should probably um, speak up against them. That would be quite a good outcome at an institution like Melbourne University. Brendan, if people are listening and they're like, oh, I've never really heard about this or I've sort of heard about it and now I get it, I want to do something to support this campaign, what can they do? Can they do something? Well, yeah, the 
the first thing you can do is tune in um, this Wednesday because we're actually going to have some socialists uh, debate the uh, trust fund baby bratty <laughs> uh, young liberals uh, who feel like it's their place to defend such a, a reactionary institution. Um, it's actually been interesting because we haven't deleted their comments. They just, whenever we put them out publicly, all of a sudden they get shy about uh, being explicit with their Nazi support and being explicit with how overtly racist their beliefs are that they take them down. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's part of the whole point behind this debate. We're not about diminishing free speech. We want to keep this institution from getting a megaphone, but we actually want these debates to be out in the open because whenever people compare these reactionary ideas to this to the ideas of socialism and actually democratizing the economy, for most people, socialism makes a whole lot more sense. Um, so yeah, if you if you go to the socialist alternative. Uh, Melbourne Uni Facebook page or the Socialist Alternative Melbourne Facebook page. Or there's uh, links in there for you to go to the debate, but also sign the open letter um, and save the date for the gala that um, that Monica mentioned earlier on Thursday, November 18th, because um, the COVID situation is very volatile in, in Melbourne right now. So it's unclear what life will look like in November. But if there are enough freedoms for those people to have a gala, we will definitely be there letting them know exactly what we think about the Institute and, uh, and the gala itself. Um, yeah, and, and just in, in general, as Monica alluded to, just staying tuned for other campaigns at the University of Melbourne. They're still cutting um, courses and they're still cutting staff, so we'll need to fight against that in every chance we get. And as as things shift with the COVID situation, um, there's going to be a big fight at our hands on Melbourne Uni trying to make sure that the campus itself is as safe as possible. Um, last year, yeah, Duncan Maskell, the VC, wrote an op-ed saying, uh, when was it we all began regarding dying as such a failure, trying to just get people used to the death? And we know on his uh, million and a half year salary, living in his fully subsidized 7.5 million mansion, uh, he's not too worried about dying, but the rest of us need to fight to make sure that our health is is maintained over profits. Mm. Yeah. And if you do go along to that debate, it's an online debate, so anyone can go um, just bring your own sick bucket for when <laughs> Um Monica, what happens next then? Like, presumably, I mean, it's a great campaign, but the powers on the other side are pretty strong. This institute will take up its place at Melbourne University. Is the campaign going to continue? Are you going to, what do you think is going to happen next? I mean, I think we'll fight like hell for as long as possible to prevent the establishment of the Menzies Institute um, and hopefully be able to storm the, the gala and opening conference yeah, in person. Yeah. Mm. Um, so we're trying to be optimistic, but of course you're right to say that the balance of forces are certainly not stacked in our favour, but in a sense they never are when you're trying to build a struggle from below. Um, so we take heart in that. Um, it's, it's never been any other way. But I guess, you know, what's at stake, I think, in fighting the Menzies Institute are a series of issues that um, go beyond this specific, specific flashpoint. So, you know, the privatisation, the lack of democracy in unis and um, just the spreading of a thoroughly reactionary agenda. All of those things are going to continue. And so I think that a part of fighting the Menzies Institute 
is to just embolden embolden students and staff to continue the struggle um, for for um, better funded, better run universities, but also um, a society in which people like Peter Credlin do not have a public platform every day to espouse their racist agenda. Yeah, excellent. Well, uh, November the 18th is in my diary. What about you, Liam? Yeah, definitely. I can't wait. I know. Um, thank you so much for coming on and um, fantastic campaign and good luck and keep going and we're with you on Red Flag Radio and, of course, Red Flag uh, a newspaper and um, um, yeah excellent thank you thank you thank you you're listening to red flag radio we have a world to win thank you